This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Right now, we are facing a man-made disaster of global scale. Our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. Should we tell young people what we've done to the climate? Too late, they are telling us. From the Climate Talks in Katowice, Poland, the student rebel who started it all, Greta Thunberg, interviewed by Stuart Scott from scientistswarning.org. From Australia to Canada, young people are walking out, protesting a system designed for extinction. Then Dr. Jem Bendel, a well-known sustainability professor from Britain, walks out on green fantasy to tell us, change your plans. Climate change will collapse this system within 10 years, he says. I'm Alex Smith. Don't miss this Radio EcoShock show. Radio EcoShock. Every time world experts meet to hash out the climate deal, Stuart Scott appears in the NGO press room to interview all the voices left out or shut out by authority. Stuart makes YouTube videos now posted at scientistswarning.org. I interviewed Stuart Scott in October for Radio EcoShock. This time, Stuart has a special guest. Greta Thunberg, a Swedish schoolgirl with excellent English, learned about the climate threat at an early age, seeing nothing happening to stop it. She left class to protest outside with a simple sign. Then she sat outside Parliament until they made her move. Now a whole generation has been inspired by her. Stuart Scott brought Greta to the Conference of the Parties 24 in Poland, the first big climate meeting since Paris in 2015. You need to hear Greta, introduced and interviewed by Stuart Scott. I will not beg the world leaders to care for our future. I will instead let them know that change is coming, whether they like it or not. I want to thank you all for coming. I'm your host, Stuart Scott. And we're coming to you live from the UN Climate Negotiations COP24 in Katowice, Poland. My co-host, Victoria Hirth, and you can contact us if you'd like to contact us about the contents of the program. Today's guest, seated in the front row of the audience, is Greta Thunberg. She's a 15-year-old climate leader. She's a Swedish student activist and an inspiration for all of today's youth. And today's program... Greta Thunberg's School Strike for Climate. Now, before I bring Greta up, this is my favorite photo of Greta, but it always brings me to tears. Her sign roughly translates as School Strike for Climate, and she sat for over two weeks outside of the Swedish parliament until they were so embarrassed by her presence, if I understand it right, that they gave her a fine. She was attracting so much attention from the press that they made her move across that bridge off of the island in which the Swedish parliament is located. And she's still out there now every Friday. It's no longer every day. She's gone back to school for four days a week, but received a lot of support, I believe, from her teachers in carrying on, because they know how serious this is. 
the politicians don't know, or they know and they don't care. So we can't save the world by playing by the rules, because the rules have to change. Greta spoke to a crowd in Helsinki, Finland, that was a record-breaking crowd. An all-time record for a gathering in Helsinki. Now, I'd like you to please warmly welcome Greta Thunberg. Now, I just want to give you, while Greta's sitting with us, an idea of what she's inspired. 15,000 people in Australia in over 30 places in 30 seasons. And, and just to add to that, uh, as you probably know, got the uh, support of, of the Senate to go on strike despite the Prime Minister being against it. So it's really fantastic. At first, the Australian politicians chided the students and said, get back to school. You shouldn't be striking. You shouldn't be activists like this. Let me show a couple of the, the slides, and then we're going to ask Greta a few questions. So this is one of the many demonstrations in Australia. I love that sign. Make Earth great again. Beware radical child activist. Civil disobedience requires no permission slips. Okay, now, Greta, what was your inspiration? How did you get into this? Yeah, uh, it was uh, when I was maybe seven, eight, or nine years old, my teachers told me to turn off the lights and save paper and uh, don't throw away food. And I asked why, and they said, because there's something called climate change or global warming that the humans are causing. And I remember thinking that it was very strange that humans who are an animal species on Earth could be capable of changing the Earth's climate. Because if we were, and if it was really happening, we wouldn't be talking about anything else. And that will be our, that will be our first priority. And then I started reading about it because I thought it was so strange. And, and I read about it more and more, and the more I read about it, the more I understood it. And then I started at home, I started with the turning of the lights and pulling out the chargers to save energy and electricity. And so that was a small start for me. And then my parents, they were pretty annoyed. <laughs> I was going to say it must have driven them crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but then they started realizing, and I told them that we, this was important, and, I, and we started reading about it together and watching films and reading books and articles. And before I knew it, I was a climate activist, or how do you say it? <laughs> and, and what was it that um, made you take your direct action? What was the turning point? What made you think, no, this is important enough, and this is the thing that I'm going to do about it? Yeah, it's pretty strong to stop going to school. What made you think of yeah. that? Did you just not like school? <laughs> That's what my boy would say, I think. No, I don't. I like school. Um, but there were some youth in the USA that refused to go to school because of the school shootings. And then I was in some kind of a group with several youth that uh, we were going to come up with new projects, projects to do. And then someone said, what if children did that 
refused to go to school, but for the climate. And then I thought it was a very good idea, and I thought that hasn't been done before. And so then I tried to get people with me, and but no one was really interested, so I had to do it alone. You tried to get people to do it with you to strike school? Yes. You asked your friends, and they said no? And the people in that group mm. also. Mm. <laughs> Good for going it alone. <laughs> I call her online and in person, not to her face, I call her Joan of Arc. She's really rallying the troops. In this case, the troops are the kids, the kids who know that we're compromising their, their world. Just to say, it really shows the power of being a follower because you're a leader, but you, you're also following the people who were doing something similar somewhere else. And I don't know if you've seen that video about the first follower effect, but it just shows that the leadership through taking inspiration from others is, is, is really important. Um, I believe you had a very important meeting today with Secretary General Guterres. Um, can you tell us something about how that went? Yeah, it was a private meeting with uh, uh, a couple of delegates from youth, delegates from different parts of the world. And uh, then uh, I held a speech together with, with uh, a guy from Fiji. And then we took a picture. And then Guterres, he talked as well. Can you tell us what you told him? Do you remember? Yes, I talked about um, climate justice. And uh, I thought that, I told him that uh, for 25 years, countless of people have stood in front of the United Nations climate conferences, begging our world's leaders to stop the emissions. But clearly that has not worked since the emissions are continuing to go to rise over and over. And so I will, not ask, I will not beg the world leaders to care for our future. I will instead let them know that change is coming, whether they like it or not, and to beg the people instead to realize that our political leaders have failed us so that I will not beg the world leaders because they have ignored us and they will ignore us again. Hear, hear. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yes, our political leaders have failed us. Our political leaders are answer to a different master. They don't really anymore answer to their populations. They're only concern is making sure they have a robust economy. Everybody's making plenty of money. And then once every few years, they just have to trick the people into re-electing them, if, if it's a, really a democratic country. So although I can see that quite justifiably you're quite skeptical about these conferences and what they might achieve in terms of leadership, um, but obviously the conferences uh, bring people like you and people like all of us together. Um, what would you say would be the best outcome of the next two weeks' discussions? I mean, these conferences are, of course, they could be very good. They could be very useful, and, but they aren't. We could make them. 
And so I, what I hope that we, all of us, achieve at this conference is that we realize that we are facing an existential threat and that this is a, the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced before and we stand in, for changes that we cannot understand that we just kind of take that in and do something with that information because people people don't know how emergent the situation is so first we have to realize that and then we have to as fast as possible do something stop the emissions and just yeah try to save what's what we can save save what we can save i want to interject a point from news of the last couple of weeks. Donald Trump, one of the most despicable persons on earth, I believe, uh, recently dismissed the report issued by his own government saying intelligent people know better, essentially. I'm intelligent and I don't believe it, is what he said. Now, Donald Trump is probably the most pathological liar um, that I can think of uh, and dismisses real news as fake news while he makes up his own lies and knows that the media will cover him and make memes out of them, repeat them until we think that they're real. If a 15-year-old girl gets it, how come a supposedly intelligent president of the United States doesn't get it? So what message would you like to give now to all the other children like you around the whole world? They're all listening at this moment, and hopefully, via our wonderful media, they, they will be. Um, what, what would you want to say to them? I would want to say that we have to understand, we have to realize what the old generations have done to us, what, they, what mess they have created that we have to clean up and live with, that we have to make our voices heard and make them try to clean it up after them, just to yeah, make their voices heard. And how, how would you like them to make their voices heard? What, what would you... They said, how, Greta? What should we do? You can do anything. You can school strike. You can demonstrate on the streets. You can, you can do anything. There's just one more question from me, and you might have some others, Stuart, and then I'm sure the audience may have some. What is it that gives you hope? I think that we today are very... We care very much. We say all the time we have to have hope. If there's no hope, then we can't do anything. But I think that even if there is no hope, we have to do something. That is, not having hope is not an excuse for not doing anything. Because, uh, of course, we need hope, but the one thing we need more than hope is action. Because once we start to act, hope is everywhere. So instead of looking for hope, we should look for action. And then, only then, hope will come. Uh, there's a gentleman whose name I'll mention, Dr. Herman Daly. 
who's said to be the founder of ecological economics, also known as steady-state economics. And if we had steady-state economics in place, we would not be in this mess instead of infinite growth economics on a finite planet. And Herman Daly once said to me when I was interviewing him online, he said, it's our moral, ethical obligation to have hope and to act. So you got it. I, I think we probably have a little bit of time for uh, questions from the audience. I was just wondering, do you think there is not so much value in um, doing things based around social media and messages at conferences to bring people's voices in or the only way is direct action uh, such as school strikes that, that can make a difference? I think that we need both. But uh, I thought why I striked is because I thought there was not enough direct action. But of course we need both. Lady third row in from the right who's had a hand up for a bit. Thank you. Thank you, Greta. You're a great inspiration to all of us. Uh, what is your message to the big business people who say there's really no problem because we can fix this problem with geoengineering, which means interfering with the planet's uh, planetary mechanisms, the ocean, the weather, the clouds, and so on? What do you children think about that? I think that it's, it's very scary because we don't know very much about it. Why do we have to do that? Why can't we just produce and stop the emissions? Is that so hard? And I think that it can, you can say that it's like one person who is dying and says, I'm not going to have an operation, I'm going to wait. In the future, there might be a magic pill that I can take. It's very risky. It's the risk of the experimentation, isn't it? Because we don't know the knock-on consequences, and we have not got a good track record in that. So, like you say, it's, a, it's very risky, and it's also pushing it out to the future, uh, when actually we have tried and tested things we can do now, which include uh, reducing our emissions. Now, we're getting very close to the end, so if there's one very short question, very short question... My name's Toby, I'm from Tasmania in Australia, um, and I actually just supported students on going on strike last week in Australia, um, and hundreds of my friends actually went on strike in Hobart. I was just wondering, what is your message to students that have been on strike last week in Australia, and you know, what's the message of solidarity that young people can send? That we, we are all in this together, and that we, we, together we are strong, and we, we will not give up. We will not give up. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, Victoria and myself and Greta. If you have questions for Greta, you can send them here as well. And we're coming to you live from COP24, UN Climate Negotiations in Katowice, Poland. Thank you. That was Swedish student climate activist Greta Thunberg. You can watch this interview on YouTube at scientistswarning.org. I'll also put a link in my show blog at ecoshock.org. 
You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith, bringing you some of the best alternative audio from the COP24 Climate Conference in Poland, December 2018. Now we go to the other end of the human age in climate change. In the UK, Dr. Jem Bendel is a professor of sustainability leadership at the University of Cumbria. His expertise has been sought around the world. Bendel is a keynote speaker at international conferences. Then he revisited the current science of climate change. In this interview with Stuart Scott of scientistswarning.org, Jem Bendel explains why his field is not really relevant, why his outlook on life has changed, and why you should expect the global system to collapse within the next 10 years. He is calling for deep adaptation. As a premiere on Radio EcoShock, here is Professor Bendel with Stuart Scott. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Jem Bendel, for having this conversation with me in the cloud and uh, coming from oh, a third of the way around the world. And I'd like to discuss with you today your paper, your, your understanding, your knowledge about the near-term collapse of civilization, which you put into a, uh, a paper called Deep Adaptation. My pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. So first, four areas, the evidence for imminent collapse, what we should do, what people are doing, and then eco-grief counseling, I'm calling it. Okay, let's see if we can get to all four. So first, what's your evidence for the imminent collapse of civilization? I've been working in uh, sustainable development and within that sustainable business. And I did that because I thought we had time to reform this system. And I stopped studying climate science uh, after I left university. But uh, we've been seeing all this information, really worrying information, coming across our screens over the last few years about permafrost melting, the uh, reduction of the Arctic ice caps. And this was corresponding with the with the absolute like worst case scenarios that uh, were being talked about back in 1993, 94, when I was last studying climate science. And it meant that I really felt I had to go, even though I'm a, a sociologist and a, a management studies professor, I felt I had to go back and look at the science myself. So I took a, a year off university and spent time looking at the various scientific papers and actually no longer just accepting what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was saying. And, yeah, this led me to realize that I had a completely false sense of both uh, timeline and threat. So it shifted from the idea that we need to uh, work to try and change capitalism, change corporations, influence governments and so on, uh, to, 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 to reduce carbon emissions. And it, it became a, a question for me of, of how do we prepare for an inevitable near-term collapse. And I, I looked at what's happening and I guessed that it would be within 10 years, a collapse in our way of life, by which I mean the normal way that we gain our sustenance from the corporate food system, uh, the way that we earn our money, the way we have fun and entertain ourselves, uh, the way we have an identity in terms of the, the jobs we do and our sense of belonging and our sense of security. 
And I came to that realization because of a number of things which the IPCC were just ignoring, really, and have always been ignoring, which is these these feedback loops where we now have evidence, so self-reinforcing feedback loops, where we now have very good evidence that they are already underway, which means that we are no longer in control of our destiny, that we're not in control of, of the climate. And those things are the key thing that's not in the not included in IPCC is methane release, uh, now ongoing from the permafrost. Uh, the amount of heating that's coming about because of the reduction of the albedo reflect from the ice disappearing from the Arctic and instead the sun's rays hitting the, the, uh, the dark waters. And I was shocked to find out people like um, Professor Wadham's calculations that if all the ice goes, then uh, that's going to account to 50% of all anthropogenic warm- warming ever, which means it's completely beyond us. And so... When I was doing this research, I mean, I was also seeing some of the very latest data. You know, when forest fires in Finland within the Arctic Circle, 30 degrees C within the Arctic Circle in July, as I was considering whether to publish my paper. So how did I get from there? So the, the, the sort of the, the rapidity of change and the sense now that it's not within our control. How did I get from there to suggesting that a collapse would occur? That's then obviously through human systems, our own economic systems, and uh, it's quite clear that the key system that we all depend on every day is to be fed and watered. And what we began to see very much in 2018 is that the destabilization of jet stream and the Arctic vortex uh, because of climate change brings forward the, in much more into the near term, disruption to agriculture than what had been predicted from models where it was more to do with generic sort of uh, changes in temperature over time. So when people were analysing the impact of, say, global warming of two degrees, that was going to definitely impact in terms of interior of continents where the grain belts are, but they weren't looking so much at the destabilisation of weather, weather patterns because of jet stream. So in 2018, we've seen across the Northern Hemisphere, not just in some countries, but across the Northern Hemisphere, we've seen quite ridiculous temperatures, which then have hit grain and vegetable harvests between 25 and 35%. Now, we only have about four months of grain reserves globally, so we only need to see a couple more summers like 2018, and we have a major food crisis in the Western world. And we now already get indications that the El Nino effect is coming back, uh, beginning slowly to come back. It will kick in within the next 12 months properly, Last time that happened, we saw we saw a major impact in rice production in, in, in Vietnam and Thailand, which are major rice exporters. And they and uh, Vietnam and India both banned rice exports at the height of the army. So you can imagine if all these things come together, and that's if the weather is as bad as it has been, not worse. And the predictions are things are getting worse. So just on the issue of food, unless something massive is done now to address that, meaning how do we make sure people get, keep, you know, billions of us are fed and watered despite a collapse in rain-fed agriculture globally. Uh, we have put a terrible situation on our hands, which will have knock-on effects. And people who analyze the Arab Spring or the, uh, the destruction of Syria point to drought and food price rises and people losing their livelihoods. So that is a really a red flag for us globally. 
The second way that these climate changes would impact on our way of life is through our global financial system. So that there is various climate impacts which we could cope with. So sea level rise is going to be extremely disruptive to millions of people and to trade routes and to agricultural lands. But we could cope with it. The problem is, is that we have a, a global financial system which is so interconnected and so dependent on the confidence of speculators who have no interest in human well-being. And they, I should say, despite many efforts of many people I've worked with over the years to embed environmental, social and governance concerns into that system, but basically it's still uh, money on automatic, uh, run by algorithms chasing near-term returns even in milliseconds. And that means that we could see paralysis uh, in financial markets as we see more disturbing weather events uh, and as we see sea level rise and basically people not un- in the financial markets not understanding how to cope with this and we see insurers saying that they're not going to be able to insure uh, many companies in future because of climate risks. So all these things could lead to a seizing up of credit markets and normal finance and the thing is because we now all depend so much, well, we all depend for our means of exchange on bank-issued debt and payment systems they provide. So we could end up seeing a, a real crisis in the basically a withdrawal of our means of payment, means of exchange. Now, that's a, a fragility in, in our own systems, which could lead to collapse and which is avoidable because it would, it would basically be before the actual climactic impacts were ripping things, you know, tearing us apart. It's our own system, which are, are too um, are too fragile in the face of these impacts. So those are the two main ways I see collapse occurring within the next 10 years. One thing I didn't say was um, a third way that collapse can occur, and some would argue has already occurred in some places uh, like Syria, is as the environmental constraints begin to feed through into a reduction in the, the quality of life and the hopes and aspirations of the general public, they become more sensitized to extremist perspectives, uh, whether that's religious or particularly right-wing. And so we're seeing that happening everywhere. Um, global value surveys show us that people no longer believe that their children will have a better uh, life than themselves. They don't believe that their tomorrows will be better. And they also show us that people are turning away from liberal progressive values in many countries and there's a rise of nativism and traditional values. This, I think, is showing that people are intuiting that something's up and therefore that social contract that's implicit that you, you kind of obey. You, you know, you go to school, you work hard, you respect your teachers, you respect the government, you respect your boss, you save, you do the right thing, you'll have a good life. Once that's breaking down, which I think it is in many people's subconscious, if not consciously, I think we're seeing increasingly consciously, uh, then then people start questioning everything and, and, and the people who come along and say, well, blame them over there, or just listen to me, I'm a big powerful guy, I'll fix it for you, and I'll give you a little bit of an adrenaline rush by making you feel great again, then um, that that's what's going to happen. And, I think we're beginning to see it. So then we'll end, so basically political extremism pulling people apart rather than bringing them together at this time will be a third thing. It's not inevitable. So when I say collapse is inevitable within 10 years, it's because of the impact on food. But these other two things are entirely human 
created and are increasing our vulnerability at a time when we need to take dramatic action to uh, generate resilience. You're listening to Dr. Jem Bendel, Professor of Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cumbria and author of the new paper, Deep Adaptation. Jem is interviewed by Stuart Scott of scientistswarning.org. This is Radio EcoShock. But when you were just talking about the, 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 the uh, strongmen, I was holding my head because we've already got Trump, we've already got Bolsonaro. Um, there are probably a half a dozen others that I could mention if I remembered the names of the leaders of those countries. I mean, my thing, the editorial perspective that I always insert into my videos, is that we are owned by money. Money is a meme, a thought virus. It uses us, humanity, for its reproductive purposes, and it has no concept that it's killing us. I agree with you. I, uh, the speech I gave at the World Investment Forum of the UN in October, uh, when I opened a conference there, I said that we have to transform our monetary system if we're going to have any chance in curbing the worst impacts of climate change. And, and that went over like a lead are, balloon, I'm sure. <laughs> well, the problem is, is that the majority of people uh, in the room would have been illiterate on monetary matters, and if I'd asked them who creates money, most of them would have assumed it was governments, and rather than at least 97%, if not more, being created by private banks when they issue loans. And so the problem is, is that just people don't have the basics. And if they're being trained as economists, what's worse is they think they know when they don't. If there's more debt in the world than there is money, because of the way the money's created, then we have to constantly expand uh, the money supply in terms of new loans. Because if, if the system stops, then, then suddenly all the money disappears. So therefore, people aren't going to lend money unless there's actual economic activity and we haven't decoupled resource consumption and pollution from uh, economic activity. So that is therefore at the heart of the suicidal way that humanity is behaving right now, yes. is the banking system and the monetary system. We are in total accord on that. We can do a whole other program on that since you seem to have complementary knowledge to mine. I don't. But the question is, what do we do now? Because I'm predicting collapse. Okay. So um, this is a age-old issue, isn't it? I mean, Karl Marx talked about it, whereas some people said, let's try and work for change, and, and other people, and he himself, argued that mm, the contradictions will collapse itself. Well, we've seen that the contradictions haven't collapsed capitalism, but the environmental contradictions look like they now will. Um, and so do we try and get monetary reform? We should definitely argue for it, but I don't think we've got time uh, and I don't think the incumbent powers uh, need to listen to people like us. And therefore, I've been focusing more on replacing the system uh, through alternatives, and whether that's local currencies or blockchain. And that's been my interest for the last um, five, six, seven years. But now more explicitly looking at how do these systems help develop resilience amongst communities so that when... The banking system goes down, we can still buy bread off each other <laughs> rather than, oh, whoops, we can't pay each other anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still could make stuff for each other and do stuff for each other, but the banking system's gone down, so we can't do that. And that's a ridiculous 
is it a tragedy or an irony? It's ridiculous anyway. So I'm quite interested in building up those resilient payment systems as part of deep adaptation. Okay, so that's what we should be doing is building up resilience. Yes, and you can only really start taking that seriously if you're prepared to look at the latest measurements and trends on climate and the impacts from climate on our basic systems like food. I have found in the sustainability field great reticence over the years to stare, to look at the data head on. And there's been this sort of self-censoring process uh, in the name of being positive and professional that, oh, let's not talk like it's doom um, and let's stay positive for our donors and our members and our government officials we're going to meet tomorrow. And it was all, let's stay upbeat. Uh, there are, in my paper, my deep adaptation paper, I go into some depth about why this has happened. Oh, and, and I basically point the finger at the professional environmental NGO sector and also the environmental business sector. Uh, I point the finger at them as uh, collapsed denialists in chief. They are the ones who are, have their, have their fingertips on this input with this, you know, they're, they're working on this and they're seeing it in front of their eyes every day. But they're telling themselves stories like, oh, the public shouldn't hear this. Um, and they just have to deal with it and grieve. You know, yes, like me, you wasted 25 years of your life. Deal with it. Start again. Got it. The thing you said about um, the NGOs and how they're locked into this story they tell themselves. I, I got the flash of calling it not taking off their rose-colored glasses, but they're taking, they have to take off their green-colored glasses. And, and they can't do that because their donors will not donate. There's a, a great example, the opening of the movie Cowspiracy, where the uh, deputy director of the Sierra Club is delivering this beautiful monologue. I mean, it's not written. He's, he's emoting about how serious the climate threat is. And then the interviewer who has set him up says, uh, but and, and when there's a growing drone while he's talking, and then that stops, and the interviewer says, but how about the industrial meat industry? And the guy says, oh, well, what about it? And then the music starts, and the movie goes on, because the Sierra Club, a major donor, is the, the, uh, the meat industry. I see. Yeah, and e even if there weren't those conflicts of interest, there's just that deeper that deeper psychological issue. If you have decided to go into the environmental sector uh, because of stories that you told yourself about purpose and one's own identity as, as an agent of change, a doer of good, a caring, respectable person, that's core to your identity, and it's kind of difficult then because it's really difficult to suddenly believe that, okay, collapse is coming, because you've, you've got to completely question who you are, not just what you've done. Um, that's what happened to me, and I, I've written about it uh, more on my blog than, than in that paper. But it was why I found it very difficult to just, not just intellectually think, oh, this looks like we've lost, collapse will occur in some way in my lifetime, but actually to really let that sink in and think, oh, Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to find a new way of life. Mm. You know, I'm going to have to find a new way of having self-worth as well. It's, it's a, a radical change in, in your life and your concept of yourself, as you said. Your whole 
Naomi Klein says, if you're going to undermine or pull out someone's worldview from under them, you have to give them another worldview. You have to give them some something to land on that, that maintains a sense of, of sanity and, mm-hmm. as, you, as you said, worth mm-hmm. and, and self-esteem and, and doing. What am I doing in the world then? I mean, if I've wasted the last 20 years, five years of my life trying to fix a system that is unalterably broken, heading for collapse, then what do I do? Where do I take my family? Where do I find safety in this collapse that's ahead? So that's another question we didn't have laid out before. Is there any safety to be found? Is the safety in our relationships with others and our building community? Myself, I don't think there's any geographical place that's safe, unless you want to move to the very, very far north where it's extremely difficult to live even now. But I do want to get to the idea of the eco-grief counseling. How do you work with people or how would you recommend that we work with people uh, who are coming to this awakening? So just first, you mentioned Naomi Klein and that uh, if you're going to pull the uh, rug out under them, their worldview, you need to offer them something else to somewhere else to go to. Um, I felt that a lot of people in my sphere were not really able to face up to the latest climate data and the impacts on human societies uh, and therefore question what they were doing because they didn't have any kind of map at all. And so that was why I decided to come up with what I call deep adaptation. Uh, and it's uh, three key questions. And it's because also I, I wanted to not say there are simple answers here because we're not in control anymore. That's, that's the key thing. And we will act without knowing really whether we're going to be successful in this very uncertain time. So I then introduced since uh, the three R's. The first one is simply, what is it that we most value, which we want to keep? So it's a question of really going deep into um, not just trying to keep things as they are, but what is it that we most value that we want to keep? And then the second question is, it's the reverse of that then, what is it that we must let go of or we'll make matters worse? And I call that relinquishment. And then the third thing, which is, well, what have we sort of lost over the last decades in our hydrocarbon-fueled fantasy civilization, which we can, which we could bring back to help. Um, so I call that restoration. And that could be simple things like uh, growing food in our back gardens and uh, spending time with our neighbors playing games rather than just sitting in our own air-conditioned centrally heated flats watching telly. You know, that kind of you know, really simple stuff. But I, I, I would just put it as three questions to invite people beyond a progressivist framing of what comes next. So you'll notice in that framing, it's not what do we need to invent or what do we need to do sort of like more, more of it. It's, 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 it starts from a place of just breathing, letting go, and, oh, okay, whoops, we've really messed up, and let's think again with the less hubris about where we go from here. So that, that because I, I think any attempt to offer a bright vision of the future at the moment is an exercise in delusion. Um, for me, I have hope that more and more people will wake up to what's important in life for themselves, and it will include things like curious, kind, and joyful connection with all life, people, and nature. And a vision would be that 
we find that there are many, many more people with open hearts and minds exploring together what the hell to do next, rather than being set on their worldview and proving themselves right because they are scared of the uncertainty that we face. So I don't have vision or hope where it's like a fixed way of life. <laughs> it's this process that, uh, that I know we're all capable of, but we're also all capable of doing some awful things because we're, we're frantic, because we're panicked, and we want to come up with excuses for ourselves for being selfish. You can see where, where I've gone with this. It's to go back to core existential questions about, you know, well, what do we value and why are we here? And what do we want to stand for, even if we're even if we're going to sink. I don't want to call it erudition, but your thoughts are inspiring, even though they're so dire. Uh, one of the things I'm told about my own presentations is that I have this kind of amazing skill to present very dire scientific information to audiences that are not prepared for. They don't even know about the methane release going on in the Arctic, and yet they leave the room feeling energized and wanting to do something about it and not depressed. So I feel the same way about listening to you, and, and you're covering areas that are kind of new in my psyche, so I have to finally face up to it emotionally. You know, I mean, I've for years have been in my mind facing up to it. You know, I'm planning on going home after the cop and armoring where I live, uh, planting more f food in the forest and planting more food on our terrace, and but there are a million people on the island I live on, and we only only grow 5% of our own food, so forget about Well, Yes, I, am, I hear you. I, I completely hear you. When you hear information about a near-term collapse being inevitable, and when I concluded myself this in January of 2018, uh, it took me a long time before I went properly public. And when I say properly public, I mean using the fact I'm a professor, that I am known in my field, and I, I had an idea about how I could get this I, this message across. And I didn't do that until July. And that's because I was taking time to work out for myself. What does this mean? I mean, if I was just to jump into busyness, then I wouldn't really be sitting with this. So I, I had to sit with it for longer. Like, okay, should I quit my job completely now and learn permaculture and join a, a green community somewhere in the foothills of the Pyrenees? <laughs> Or should I just, I don't know, just have think, oh, well, okay, uh, 10 years, I'll just spend what I've got left and enjoy myself. I've always wanted to learn the guitar much better and write poetry and maybe a novel. And, you know, I, I had to really sink into all those questions and also really think through how are people going to respond. Like, is it is it right to talk about this stuff at all? I mean, are we just going to create a lot of despair, a lot of panic? some depression. So you kind of explore all of that. And and I did. And what was important for me was I found people to talk to about it. And not just the data, intellectualizing, but about the feelings about it. Even to the extent of, I've woken up today in a state of panic. My heart is racing. It's almost like a panic attack from my anticipatory eco trauma or fear. It's like, and I have no ideas about how to deal with these emotions. I've never been counseled on managing my emotions or spotting them. So yeah, being with, in dialogue with people who are going through the same processes was important. 
and then giving some time to go down all the different routes. So you, you mentioned one about how do I make my own community more resilient? It can't be done just uh, locally. Resilience has to be at multiple levels. So absolutely people should grow their own. They should uh, look at ways of being more off-grid, also having non, non-energy using water filtration systems. Um, all, all manner of things can be done, but uh, you'll just have your neighbors come and steal everything when they are hungry or people coming from the city or being invaded from abroad. So there are multiple levels of action. It's impossible to prep alone. It's impossible to prep just with your neighbors. It's impossible to prep with your town or just your country. And so when I hear these stories of bunkers being bought by billionaires, that just shows you how nuts they are. You know, they think that they can ride this one out. <laughs> yeah, right. When they open their last tin of peaches and they come up and they're, oh, yeah, right. Well, as if they're not killed by their, their bodyguards, because money won't matter in those contexts anymore. I'm hoping that more and more of the one percenters will realize that we're really in this all together and you can't just prep alone. You have to um, have those multiple levels. What you just said was brilliant, and that's why we're doing this. That's why I'm doing this, because we have to wake those one percenters up to the fact that they don't fare very much better from than anyone else for very long, and their thinking they will is delusional. And I don't know if they're the, to the point of realizing their delusion. I know Donald Trump isn't. He is mm. psychopathic. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, if there are anywhere, I mean, I, I know your, I know your output is very well regarded. And if there are any billionaires watching, then it's clear that, um, you need to welcome your own personal existential crisis and you don't want to be being killed by your bunker guard in a way where you feel guilty about how you contributed to the destruction of humanity. So it's about time right now to do what you can to help humanity respond collectively to reduce the harm all those billionaires out there, that you stop buying bunkers, start helping humanity. Amen. I was going to say, amen, Jesus, but I'm not Christian, and I don't want to uh, <laughs> be, uh-huh. be mocking of, of any religious memes either. So that that right. gets included, by the way. I don't know if it gets included at the COP or if it gets included. I may include it in the COP, even if we're live. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. Right. We'll, we'll see. Eco grief. You wanted to talk about eco grief counseling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm very happy to. Um, there are. I don't think there are any eco grief counselors out there, except maybe Alison Green, who's uh, how we know one another, sort of. Yeah, and I haven't talked about some of the substantive things that could be done for deep adaptation either. We haven't talked about what should people be doing, and therefore, you know, should they be rebelling? Um, Why not? So I mean, it doesn't can... certainly doesn't hurt to have an extinction rebellion. This brilliant young girl, Greta Thunberg, mm. who I have the honor of bringing mm. to the COP, mm. has a huge and, and exponentially increasing following where I've, I'm told 29 mm. cities in Australia now have their, their school systems being struck by their students. I don't know to what extent, but they're, it's spread to 29. So this innocent little girl who's got Asperger's and, um, almost died because when she realized climate was what, what was she stopped eating and stopped talking. And when the doctors told her, we're going to put you on intravenous if you don't start eating, she came back. She started eating again. And she started talking as though she had seen, excuse me, as though she had seen God. 
There's nothing in her talk about having seen God, but it's, I say as though she had seen the light. And she talks with mm-hmm. this incredible clarity about how can you, you say this, how can you see this and not immediately, you know, what are you doing? I'm told that the Secretary General of the United Nations has asked to meet with her in, in Poland. So there are signs that we're waking up, signs. Anyhow, eco-counseling, eco-grief counseling. Well, I, um, I just want to have a, a word on that because uh, it was good to see that uh, she came all the way from Sweden in an electric car to join in the very first action of the British Extinction Rebellion. And uh, I've known some of the Extinction Rebellion uh, right from the start when I was... Uh, yeah, I've been in quite closely in, in, in communication with them, and I was one of the first signatories of the letter from academics and religious leaders that um, uh, invited people to um, non-violently rebel because of an extinction crisis, which also now threatens human extinction. And non-violent direct action, civil disobedience, is certainly one thing that is worth trying, uh, to bring attention, to cut through the media, to reach people. But also what it does is it, it normalizes this sense of urgency and primacy uh, and that this is a, an existential threat. So it normalizes that idea, which means that more people can have proper conversations about them, what do we do? And it's also creating lots of uh, interesting connections between people as well around this. So I'm, I'm pleased with what it's doing at that level. The, of course, uh, civil disobedience and a strategy of you know, getting people arrested in order to put pressure on government is still quite limited. And therefore, I'm, I'm, it's going to be interesting to see how that's complemented by other activities, both done by Extinction Rebellion and by others. So you mentioned uh, Greta, yeah? And um, I think it's brilliant that other people are doing what she's doing, uh, for example, in Australia. I think it would be good to see a global school children's extinction rebellion, and I would like to see that involving teachers and parents. It's not a rebellion against teachers, but I'd also like to see it as not just calling on government to act, but rebelling against what governments have been doing to schooling and to kids. And what we need is a complete revolution in schooling in light of the impending collapse. There's a whole range of things that they do not need to be studying for anymore. And there's a lot of ways that their school kids are being damaged by our educational systems. And there are a lot of life skills from mindfulness to basic techniques to uh, fix and mend things. And uh, there's horticultural skills. I mean, schools could become hubs of resilience in communities. And I think part of a, a global Children's Extinction Rebellion would be to rebel against the oppressive curriculum and um, systems and, and, demand, and demand an education which wakes up to where, where we're at with what's coming for them. It doesn't train them up to be little cogs in a banking-driven march over the cliff. But I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting ideas being generated. But what I'm trying to do is make the connection between what the Extinction Rebellion is saying, which is mostly focused on mitigation at the moment, and these momentary moments of civil disobedience, which a few people can get involved in at the level of being arrested or put in prison. But to bridge that with the adaptation agenda and also with an everyday response, where we're actually thinking, well, what are the institutions that are out there that could be repurposed to help us 
face collapse and beyond. So for me, I think schools will have a really key. So it's brilliant you're working with Greta. I think, I think schools are going to have, could have a massive role to play if we see them as hubs of resilience. And I think it's also the most loving response at the moment, um, given what the, the future we're handing children right now. Two, two things I'll comment on. One, um, the fact that Extinction Rebellion is perhaps working in the area of mitigation, and mitigation may or may not be relevant anymore. And I say may or may not because I think one of the, one of the problems is that, again, in our anthropocentric view of the universe, it's all about us. And as you and I know, but humanity's got to move from the current mainstream narrative, which is we can still stick to 1.5 if we try really hard, which is total, absolute poppycock, as they say in England. So I, I think there's a, a Extinction Rebellion's great. It, I, I'm very encouraged by that. There's also one we haven't talked about, no time to talk about this conversation, which is I'm calling Sue the Bastards. And I'm going to have a program where two attorneys are going to be talking about suing. That won't be the title, I don't think. Going to be talking about suing corporations and, and governments. And I'm having a group of three students from Berlin International School come week two. And they're going to talk about the failure of the education system. You're listening to Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. That was Dr. Jem Bendel from the University of Cumbria in the UK. His latest paper is Deep Adaptation. And you can find links to all this in my Radio EcoShock blog at ecoshock.org. Professor Bendel was interviewed by Stuart Scott from scientistswarning.org. Check that out. Look for more interviews coming on Radio EcoShock from the NGO Forum at the COP24 Climate Talks in Katowice, Poland. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.